Welcome back, friends, to today's episode of the Reynolds Wrap Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Reynolds, and this podcast is meant to help encourage and bless you as you seek to live an authentic life in Christ Jesus. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and hit that subscribe button to get updates on original content each week. And also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and online at rayreynoldswrap.com. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, rappers, appreciate so much you tuning in to today's broadcast. You know, each week we try to bring fresh new content, and we're grateful so much for you coming back for that original content each week. But we have decided that once in a while we'll put some material on here that is from a previous Bible class or a previous sermon that we feel like can benefit you. And so this is one of those uh, podcasts where it is a lesson I've delivered elsewhere and just feel like the content is uh, still timely and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Send me an email or send me a DM, IM, or text me and let me know what you think of this particular message. I hope you enjoy. When I was growing up, I loved to watch baseball. I'm a Cardinals fan by heart. And I uh, remember watching, uh, one thing I loved watching was the Cardinals win. The other was watching the Cubs lose. Uh, we had WGN all the time on TV, so sometimes we'd turn over there just to watch them lose a game. If they were winning, we'd change the channel. But I loved baseball growing up, and one of my favorite baseball stories was of the 1957 World Series with Yogi Berra, who's that well-known catcher for the Yankees that constantly was trying to banter and, and cause ruckus with the, uh, with the batters. And Hank Aaron, who at that time was the chief power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves, and when they met in the World Series that year, uh, Yogi uh, starts out, you know, giving that that chatter, the banter that you knew he was going to give, and uh, basically did two purposes. One was to pep up his teammates, and the other was to aggravate the batter at the plate. But he tried to distract Hank Aaron, and he says, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. So Aaron doesn't listen, and the very next pitch, he hits it to the left field bleachers. When he rounds the bases, he comes back to home plate, and Aaron looks at Yogi Berra, and he says, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> and I just love that story. That's, that's the kind of focus that we need in the Lord's church, to not get distracted by little things, to not be focused on the things that people tell us we need to be focused on, but to be focused on the things that we know God wants us to focus on. There are basically five things that I think we need to focus on as God's family, and they're not necessarily in any particular order, but they are five important standards. I had a sermon one time about the individual focus of a Christian, and it was called Fixed on Christ's Unwavering Standard. And I like that for the individual. But what about for a church family, for a congregation from our viewpoint? What are some things we need to focus on as God's family? Well, the first thing I think we need to focus on is faithfulness. You know, Jesus frequently had to rebuke the apostles for their little faith. He would say to them, you just have a a little bit of faith. But yet, if you'll remember, he told them at one time in Luke 17, 6, all you really need is just a little bit of faith. And he'll tell them even a mustard seed worth of faith would have been valuable to him. And what we know after rightly dividing the word of God is that faith is essential for our walk. And even if we have just a small mustard seed worth of faith, we have enough to get through and survive this world and please God. But God wants us to build on that faith and grow 
in our faith, to try harder to do better. Now, we all know faith is essential for salvation. The Bible teaches us that. So it's an essential requirement for our own personal walk with God. And we know that faith puts us in and keeps us in a right relationship with God because it's an urgent personal requirement that it's impossible to please God without faith. And we know that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We know that, Romans ten seventeen. So faith is an imperative prerequisite for our own personal spirituality. But what about as a congregation? What about as a church family? Are we required to have a congregational faith? Well, I think we are, because we're called to be like-minded, spiritually connected, bound together as a family of believers. Collectively, we must be a faithful church. We're currently studying the book of Revelation on Sunday nights at Gulf Shores, and, and I love especially the first part in chapters 2 through 3. And it starts off in chapter 1 where Jesus is walking around the lampstands. And he's walking around these lampstands that represent the seven churches of Asia. And there's a broader aspect to it as well. And we could talk about that at another time. But one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's collecting the prayers of the righteous. In fact, it says that he's collecting them in vials or bowls of incense underneath the throne. That the prayers of those churches are so precious to him, and the martyrs of those churches are so precious to him that he collects them. And we all have treasures. Those are Jesus' treasures. Those are the things that he has collected, and John reveals as Revelation opens up. And we give John credit for writing the book of Revelation, but six of those first 20 verses in chapter 1, all 29 verses in chapter 2, and all 22 verses in chapter 3 are written in red in my Bible. And I'll bet if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll see the same thing. You might want to check. We know that Jesus is talking to church families. Jesus is saying to those church families, I'm watching what you're doing. I'm aware of your works. I see your faith. And I'm going to reward you for the things that you've done right. And I'm going to punish you for the things that you've done wrong. So each of those church families hold within their own hands their own future. Based on their works. Based on their faith. And if you keep reading those seven short letters to those seven churches. You're going to see blessings and judgment that come consistently with God's nature. Based on our faithfulness to him. Now, there were a few key individuals in some of those churches that were remnants. Maybe the congregation was starting to go astray. But he's ultimately addressing seven churches, not seven Christians. That each of those churches would be rewarded based on their collective works. Whether or not he spared them of certain things to come, rewarded them for certain things, or punished them for certain things. So the church family that's focused on selfishness, focused on idolatry, focused on things that are false, which you see that in those seven churches, he says, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to remove myself and my spirit and whatever fire you got left. Now that's to the whole church. So we have to focus on our own faith individually, but we also need to look out for the faith of the church family. Where are we standing together? The whole church suffers when we're not all on track. Remember Revelation 2 and verse 10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Who's he talking to? Which individual Christian is he addressing? Well, he's not. 
He's addressing the entire church. He's saying, I want you to all be faithful so that I can reward you all collectively. The second thing I think we need to have as a focus for the church family is outreach. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time on these next two because uh, I was asked to spend a lot of time on these two specific things. But what about outreach? There's always room in God's family. Amen? Amen? I'll talk to myself. It's all right. There's always room in the family of God. You know, in the Church of Christ, we pride ourselves on being people of the book. And we used to be called Bible thumpers or walking Bibles. We love to read the Bible. And we're proud of our heritage. Within our fellowship, we focus on restoring New Testament Christianity. We focus on applying and reapplying the book of Acts. I read an article, maybe I should say I reread an article this week preparing for our lesson today from Wayne Jackson. It's called, Is the Restoration Plea Valid? And you can look it up on ChristianCourier.com. There's another one he has called The Restoration of the First Century Christianity. And in those articles and others, and you could find a lot of great brethren that argue and, dis- and discuss the restoration plea, he reexamines it. And in doing that, he says we're still falling short. There are still things we can see within the New Testament church that we're not applying, that we need to be even more enlightened, that we need to be challenged. Let me give you a few examples. One, just consider the prophecies of Daniel. I'm sure that we've heard sermons before, and we've studied before Daniel 2, and we've studied Daniel chapter 7. And we we can probably see in our minds the image of the picture that's put on PowerPoint. I didn't put one up today. Of all those images, starting with the head of gold all the way down to the feet of bronze and clay. And we can see that image in our mind, and we know exactly which empire is represented by each of those stages. And, And we can see those prophecies, and we know that, of course, the New Testament church is established at Pentecost... And we know that it's during the time of the Roman Empire, and we know those prophecies of the church. We're probably also familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah, of Micah, of Joel. And within those prophecies, we begin to understand what what, what kind of an environment the church was to come into. But there's another important aspect of kingdom thinking, of those prophecies that we might miss, and that is who is in the kingdom. If you'll continue to look at those passages, you'll find, especially in Joel, which is the sermon, by the way, that Peter's preaching on Pentecost, that inside of the church family there are both young and old and slave and free and male and female from every tribe, tongue, race, color, and social status that are blended into the family of God, that they are all within God's care. Now, how many of us, how many of the churches have mission statements? Anybody have mission statements? Okay, that's great. Anybody know their mission statement? Can you say it out loud? Terry, can you say yours? What is it? Fantastic. Did you hear the second part there in the middle? Evangelize the community. Evangelism, outreach. Anybody else? Mission statement, do you know it? Can you quote it? All right. If you have a mission statement, what is in that mission statement? Is part of it evangelism? Is part of it outreach? Is part of it reaching out into the community? Most congregations have some kind of a a, a ministry or a mission for reaching out into their community. But as we read the book of Acts, 
we see what their mission was in Jerusalem. I think you could probably see a pretty good mission for the church in Antioch as well. And what we learn is that in order to accomplish God's mission for the church, we have to learn to be unbiased. We have to be people that are without prejudice. We have to be able and be willing to reach out to people that are completely the opposite of us. I mean completely the opposite. That was the message of Jesus. You may remember the nicknames that they gave Jesus. What were they? Anybody remember? What did they call Jesus? Matthew chapter 11, Luke 7. They called him a drunkard. A wine-bibber. What else did they call him? A glutton. A friend of sinners. A friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. Friends, you don't get those nicknames hanging out at the YMCA. You don't get those nicknames hanging out at Starbucks. You don't get those nicknames having a Tuesday prayer group that meets every week at your building. How do you get those nicknames? By being around those kinds of people. That's the kind of ministry that Jesus chose. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He says, I came to call the sinners, not the righteous. I recognize that the sick need the physician, not the healthy. Now, I know we got a little time, so just two thoughts on this. If we're going to be focused on outreach, we have to stop discriminating against each other. To realize that every person is equal in the eyes of God. That we are all sinners in the need of God's amazing grace. And even in the kingdom, we come into the kingdom and we're saved from our sins, we still slip up, we still make mistakes, and the only perfection, the only maturity I can claim is what I have in Christ Jesus. That I am still a nothing, no good sinner in need of a gracious God. And so that affects our outreach as a church. That we reach out to every person, no matter who they are, what they look like, or where they live. And if we're doing that successfully, when you look at a church family, if their focus is right, they are blended. They are blended. The second part of that, in order to accomplish it, is within that mission strategy, is we look at our evangelism. Where are we doing evangelism? What about our community? You know, if, if you're in a, and I'm just going to talk plainly, if you're in a predominantly white congregation, in a predominantly black community, you have two choices. One is either you've got to change your mission outreach or you keep your culture until they close the doors. You have to make a choice. The congregation has to adapt to the community in which it's involved. You will have people come into your church family on occasion that are from different backgrounds. But if you live in a culture, in a community where there are all kinds of different people, you need to be reaching all kinds of different people. Now we have an example of that in Acts 6. The Hellenistic widows are being neglected in congregational benevolence in the Jerusalem church. Remember how they handled it? In their great wisdom, the apostles say, here's what we're going to do, guys. We want you to choose seven men with Hellenistic backgrounds, and they all, they all have it, to come in and help fix this problem. The church family, the local community, needed to see that there was a change in leadership. Now, the same would be true for a congregation that's living in a community where there's a huge Hispanic population, that we would be foolish not to employ or to support someone within our leadership team that's going to reach out to those people. 
If our community is 60 to 70% women, what women's ministries do you have as a church? You're offering a mom's night out? Maybe tutoring for their children? You have Saturday games and events? If you, if you have so many women in your community, what are you doing for them? What if your community is predominantly divorced young adults? If you pull your community and you see there's all these divorced couples, are you offering singles classes on Sunday morning? Are you offering young adult get-togethers on Wednesday night before church? Are you offering free counseling for people that are going through divorce? If your community is predominantly poor, what's your building look like on the outside? Does it scream to the poor we're rich and powerful in here? Are there large Greek columns and scrolling marquee signs where everybody comes in wearing a tie? Or are we serving free meals to those that are poor? Are we offering free GED classes and, and ESL classes? Do we have a clothes closet? Do we have a food pantry? Are those things advertised? If you've got a lot of poor people in your community, that is God has put you there to minister to them. That is outreach. Faithfulness is important. That's the first step. But on Judgment Day, we all want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you want to hear good and faithful servant, you want to hear the words well done, you need to do well. And that takes works. It takes outreach. Now that launches us into another thought which comes with the C. And that is, and again, these are the two main things that I was asked to speak on, is on change. How can we adapt? How can we change? How can we get our focus where it needs to be? God wants to see congregations of the Lord's people growing. You can read sometimes on church websites, you can visit congregations where they aren't going anywhere. They haven't changed a thing. You can get a bulletin from 20 years ago, it's the same last names. It may be the guy's kid now that's leading. But nothing's changed. All the faces are new. In fact, if you time it right, you can probably figure out if Brother So-and-So's leading singing, what five songs he's going to start with. We don't change. We we like to stay in that spiritual rut, which is an old preacher I knew used to say, a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. We don't like to change, but we've got to change if we're going to be the church of the New Testament. We read about repentance over and over again, and we are foolish to believe that repentance is just something that takes place on the day I'm converted. The longer you look into the mirror of your soul, the longer you dig deep into this wonderful book, the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the more you realize you've got to change stuff. You want to be like him in all that you can. And that means that we repent of sins. If we're confronted with something that's wrong, we have to change it. We have to repent. Repentance is essential for salvation, no doubt. But we often overlook that repentance is more than just salvation. Repentance is transformation. The Roman church struggled with this. You can read in chapters 3 through 5, Paul addresses the way a Christian must view sin in the light of true faith. You get to chapter 6, he's going to talk about getting out of sin and emphasizing baptism, erasing the wages of sin that cause death. In order to do that, you have to die with Christ because death is the penalty for sin. In chapter 8 of Romans, he's going to talk about how the Holy Spirit helps us to avoid sin, keep us safe, aid us in prayer. Then you get over to chapter 12. He must have known 
that the believers at Rome would have accepted all those prior teachings, but it gets into some deeper, more difficult stuff. He begins in Romans 12, in verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being a daily sacrifice means making some difficult choices like, as he'll get to in chapter 13, submitting to your government, to a Roman government that would kill the man who wrote the book. Rome would kill Paul, and he says in chapter 13, if you're going to be a daily sacrifice for Christ Jesus, you're going to be radical in the way you live, and you're going to submit to people that will take your life, because you're more concerned about the one who could take your soul. Applying Jesus' teachings, Paul walks. He walks with God in sacrifice and in submission. Neither neither of those are easy, neither of those are sudden, and they're certainly not stress-free. And that takes some personal things, but it takes some congregational things. As a congregation, we have to mature. Some of us have learned that. Little things. Remember the bus ministry? Every church had to have a bus. Every church had to have some kind of a bus ministry. That was the growing trend. How many of us still have bus ministries? Nobody. Why not? That was a fad. It faded. It worked for a little while. It just... How about radio ministry? Every church had to have radio. Brother, I mean, if you didn't have a radio program, something was wrong. Anybody have radio ministry still? A few churches may still do that. Why did we stop doing radio? Why did we quit pushing radio ministry as the number one source of evangelism? People don't listen to the radio like they used to. It's not how they get their news. What about door knocking campaigns? I was a student at Heritage Christian University. We were required to go on two campaigns every year. And, and some of us still may have door-knocking campaigns, but why don't we do them more frequently? Right when I was starting to really get interested in church, I heard our older Christians talk about two-week gospel meetings. Any of you remember those? Two-week gospel meetings. The first one was a revival to fire up the church, and the second one was that outreach into the community. Why don't we do that anymore? Why have we changed? Because we've learned. Why don't we have tent meetings anymore? We have, we've adapted, we've changed. Maybe a better use of our time would be investing in things like social media where people are actually engaging in spiritual conversations and many of them are not positive. Maybe a good, better investment in, in changing to adapt to our culture is actually getting a church website where people can go and read about what we teach and what we're about and the ministries we're involved in. Maybe another opportunity would be to Do better advertising as to what our mission really is. A lot of us have track racks in the church. Anybody have track racks at your church? I do. In fact, if you go to ours at Gulf Shores, I think 100% of them are Alan Webster tracks. I love some of the stuff. I really love some of the stuff he writes. I've been preaching for 20 years. I've never had somebody come to me and say they wanted to become a New Testament Christian because they read a track. Some of you may have a different experience with that. People are not engaged like that. You know what does convert people sometimes? How many of you had success with the muscle and shovel book? What? What is the... It's just... It's, it's not a track. It's a book. Do you know why a muscle and a shovel is so successful? Because it's one man's personal witness of what Jesus Christ did for him. 
Now, I'll tell you, I don't agree with some of the stuff in the book. There's a couple things that the preacher teaches him that I don't agree with. And that's okay. But what I do love and why I share it, and we buy it by the buckets, is because it's a man saying, this is what God has done for me. And people are dying to hear that kind of a message. That's why it makes sense. We have to sacrifice, we have to submit, and we have to change. If that is what's working, we go with it. We can't keep our heads in the mud, but that's just the beginning. We have to increase our fellowship opportunities. We have to look at ways to bring people in. Maybe it's meals, maybe it's events. But we look at our, look at our work and we say, what can we do to change to be more adaptive to our community? That's going to take some radical things. You know, John Wesley said, I want the whole Christ for my Savior, the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for our mission field. We can't just stay focused on who's sitting in the pew. That's important, keeping ourselves on track. But if we're going to be the New Testament church, we've got to get out of this building. We've got to get out of the boardroom and start getting into some living rooms to make a difference. The fourth thing is unity. Again, like I said, these aren't all in a specific spiritual order that one, two, three, four execute. But unity is certainly something that's necessary if we want to change our focus and be like the New Testament church. The unity of believers is what pleases God. As Christians, we can't live in isolation. We need one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. We need to share one one another's joys. We need to grow in the same mind and the same judgment. We find strength in our diversity. If you look around your church and everybody looks the same and talks the same and acts the same, that might be something to consider. It's okay to have people there that think a little different than you, that act a little different than you. They're in a different spiritual place. They're growing You know, I don't smack my kids every time they make a bad decision. Because I'll tell you what, I made a lot of bad decisions at their age that were a whole lot worse than what they've done. Unity is about loving people. Now, please listen. If we're going to stay focused as a church family, and I mean focused on things that matter, we have to stop division. If Jesus could operate a successful ministry for three and a half years under strict living conditions, without a headquarters, without a designated place to eat or sleep, to be unappreciated and scorned daily, but somehow blend a fellowship with a potty mouth sailor like Peter, two go-getting overachievers like Andrew and Philip, two thunderous Samaritan-hating, prejudice-loving brothers like James and John, a legalistic Nazarene-loathing guy like Nathaniel, an ultra-conservative zealot like Simon, a doubting Thomas, and a James and a Thaddeus who would leave Jesus in his most desperate hour with a Roman-loving tax collector like Matthew, equal to the Herodians and the Jews' eyes, who loved Edomites and loved heretics, with a money-stealing, heartless Judas Iscariot, then I guess I could learn to tolerate a few brethren that sit on my pew that disagree with me on matters of opinion. Jesus took that ragtag group of nobodies, and they weren't priests, and they weren't prophets, but he turned them into spiritual giants. He didn't see them at the moment of their calling as somebody who was just this no-good sinner with all the, the baggage that we just mentioned. 
And I'm not trying to be unfair to them because they were great men. But he saw what they could become. If we want to really be the New Testament church, we've got to see people for what they can become, who they can be, not who they are, and certainly, certainly not where they've been. I'm uncomfortable with addressing my sins from my past. Are you? Do you like to be labeled based on the sins that you have committed? Now, here's, here's, the, here's the breaking news, you know, the bottom of the screen. Breaking news. We aren't always going to get along. And we are going to disagree, even often over important things. How we prove ourselves to be a New Testament church is how we handle it. Do we talk about it? If I have a problem with a brother, I go talk to that brother, Matthew 18. I don't go talk to every brother and sister in the church. If I have an issue with my elders, I go talk to my elders. If I have a problem with my preacher, I go talk to my preacher. That's the way it's done in the New Testament church. They talked things out. And you know what else they did? They got into the book. They began to look and study and listen and test to see if everything Paul taught was correct by searching the Scriptures daily. To begin to look into the Word and say, what do I need to do? If I'm wrong, I need to change. Too many times when we're confronted with something and we know that we're wrong, we just don't admit it. We, I don't want to say that I've made a mistake. I'll just ignore it and maybe soon it'll, it'll get away. Maybe sometime they'll forget about it. If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, that's a church with problems. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the, 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 the small stuff. Church, I'm talking about some big, deep-rooted problems. They struggle with immaturity, selfishness, impurity, immorality, idolatry, sexual deviant behavior. Legalism, liberalism, petty lawsuits, instability, sincerity issues, authenticity. They didn't love one another. They had issues with the women jumping up in the middle of service. They had issues with lawsuits and lawyers and Judaizing teachers. They didn't know how to treat the rich. They didn't know how to treat the poor. They couldn't even agree on when to take the Lord's Supper and how big of a feast it should be. They had no leadership. They followed all those little trends that their culture was putting forward, and they also followed the trends of the recent preacher. They had preacher-itis like I have never seen. They fought and argued over who had better talents. They fought and argued over who had greater abilities and spiritual gifts that Paul even says, you don't determine who gets what gift anyway. It's the Holy Spirit. They had brethren that didn't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anybody ready to sign up for membership? You want to be a part of that church? I'd find one up the road. I'd drive 40 minutes. I wouldn't want to be a part of this congregation. But Paul starts in verse 2, verse 2. And he says, I want to talk to the saints. The saints. There's nothing saintly about these brethren, but Paul saw who they could become. He saw who they were called to be, and that's what matters. He takes their focus off of the earth and begins to put it onto heaven. And when you do that, you begin to see the things that matter. And you recognize that your enemy is not your brother and sister on the pew next to you. Your enemy is the devil. And the devil loves division. God is not the author of confusion. He's not, he is not loving division in our churches. We've got to have unity. Finally, I'm going to move quick. Faithfulness is essential in every church. Outreach is the lifeline that keeps us alive. Change is what keeps us growing and moving forward. Unity is what keeps us together. But service, church, service 
is what is the image of Jesus Christ. Now we know that hard work is honored by God. We know that hard work brings rewards. It's, it's helping supply our basic needs. It gives us purpose. We know that God never gives us anything that is wasted. He wants our work to be successful. He started a work in us, and he's not going to stop until it is completed. But the main point, the focal point, as my brother and friend Slate Moore used to always say, the power point, okay, is that the church is the hands and the feet and the mouth and the living representation of Christ on earth. There are a lot of passages of Scripture that tell us about what the church is to be. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the temple of God, the house of God, the church of the firstborn, the church of the Lord, the church of God, the churches of Christ. We're the church. We are the called out ones. You know who else was called called out ones? The apostles. You are apostles. You've been sent out. You've been called out to be a witness to the whole world, to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. What was his mission? To seek and save the lost. That alone must be our sole focus. Once we're a Christian, it's to be as much like Jesus as I can possibly be. To bring more people into his family. To add more brothers and sisters from every nation, speaking every tongue, from every background, in every highway and byway and backway and any other way. Our goal is to bring them into the kingdom of God. Whether they are young or old, they're gray or bald or sporting a toupee, if they're black or white or brown or purple, male, female, or gender confused, married, single, divorced seven times, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, drunk or sober, everybody needs Jesus. And, and I know I, that may offend you, but in the Corinthian church, he says they had all that. We, are, we, are, um, we begin to look at the New Testament church, and we think, well, we're, we're not like that. We're, we're better than that. We're, we're doing things, we're excelling in areas where they didn't. But we're so far behind. They reached out to people no matter who they were. Some things make us uncomfortable. I mentioned about... People that have a different sexual orientation is what they call it now. The Bible calls it homosexuality. It calls it sin. How do you handle that in your churches? If you're reaching out to your community like you should, you're going to have those people come in. How do you handle that? You wrap your arms around them, tell them Jesus loves you? Absolutely. But you know what else we have to do? We have to teach. And we have to share. Jesus just didn't bring them in. You know what he told them? Don't do it again. Go and sin no more. It's not just about condemning people. That's God's job to judge the world. Our job is to be Jesus to them and to also show them that God has a better plan for their life. The final thought on the matter is Jesus wants us all to change. He wants the world to change. He wants us to change. And we cannot hope to do that unless we expose people to the light of the world and get them out of darkness. Our focus, our focus is those, I think those five things that we have faithful churches that are faithful to God, outreaching to others, changing our hearts and minds to be like Jesus, having unity with our brethren, and serving everyone, everyone, everyone in our community. Our focus is not to change the world, it's let God change the world. Our focus is to not tell the world what they're doing wrong. You're probably wasting your time anyway. They don't care. Our focus is to be Jesus.
not to act like the family of God, not to talk like the family of God, not to teach about the family of God, but to be the family of God. That's our focus. I want to close with two thoughts real quick. Henry Ford was a great organizer in leadership and vision. And he said this once, a weakness of all human beings is trying to do too many things at once. It scatters effort and destroys direction. It makes for haste and haste makes waste. So we do the things all the wrong ways possible before we come to the right one. And then we think it's best way because it works. And it was the only way left that we could see. Every now and then I wake up in the morning headed toward that finality with a dozen things to do. And I know I can't do all of them at once. So I go and trot around the house. And while I'm running off that excess energy that wants to do too much, my mind clears and I see what needs to be done first. Ask yourself, what needs to be done first? What are the first things? If we're going to fortify our church families, that's what we need to do. And the world needs to see that we're different. Here's some radical thinking from our Savior Jesus Christ. You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you might be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the Reynolds Wrap podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok, and also check out our website at rayreynoldswrap.com. If you have any questions or if you'd like for us to address a specific topic in the future, you can write to us at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. Be blessed and may the Lord guide you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. Thank you.